Hey, are you into werewolves, mad scientists, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. What have I told you about these messages, Gavin? You need to handle them. You call my stupid redneck cousin in Orlando and tell him no. No matter what he read on Facebook, he can't shoot the hurricane. Ass. The following podcast contains... Your use of language has altered since our arrival. It is currently laced with, shall I say, more colorful metaphors. Double dumbass on you and so forth. You mean the profanity? Yes. That's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you came up with the idea of trying to nuke a hurricane, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is a Friday, August 30th, 2019, Nuke You Like a Hurricane edition of the show, where we take a look at some very bad ways to fix our very fucked up planet. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Andy's Big Ass Space Mirrors. Are you a habitable planet rapidly turning into a simmering ball of ship through mismanagement, incompetent, and greed? Are you looking for a cool-sounding, insanely expensive, and technologically impossible solution in lieu of doing something? Look no further than Andy's big-ass space mirrors. For an obscene amount of money, we will go on live television and spend outlandish yards about building giant orbiting mirrors to reflect sunlight away from the planet, reducing temperatures, and saving the world. Mind you, we won't build you one, because that would be ridiculous. But we will talk about building one. Andy's big-ass space mirrors, when actually doing something just sounds really hard and inexpensive, go with Andy's. No, not while my greatest nemesis still provides our customers with free light, heat, and energy. I call this enemy the sun. Since the beginning of time, man has yearned to destroy the sun. I will do the next best thing. Block it out. Back when I was a kid... I watched a lot of cartoons. And not just good cartoons where like anvils would crush coyotes and rabbits could defeat speech-impaired hunters with a mix of moxie and dubious physics. I also watched, you know, this one Hanna-Barbera cartoon which was basically a carbon copy of another Hanna-Barbera cartoon only with the setting and voice actors replaced. You know the one I'm talking about. Uh, all of them? Yeah, but specifically I'm talking about the Jetsons, which were the Flintstones but set in the future. Objectively speaking, the Jetsons were horrible, even by cartoon standards and even by the low standards of the 60s when they were made, and it didn't hold up all at all well in the 70s when I watched them. I mean, <laughs> well, we had four fucking channels, so really... What choice did I have? I mean, it wasn't like I was going to come home after school and sit down with the McLaughlin group. Washington, the McLaughlin Group, the American original. For over three decades, the sharpest minds, best sources, hardest talk. What I will say is the Jetsons are single-handedly responsible for convincing an entire generation of American children that by the time we were old enough to drive, we would definitely have flying cars. 
The lack of flying cars is probably what made Generation X so incredibly cynical and apathetic in our youth. I mean, you grow up expecting you will be hovering around in an anti-grav dome-mobile, only to find out the closest thing you're going to get is a goddamn used Chevy Astro van. You'd lose faith in the system, too. And look, I can't blame it entirely on the Jetsons. Although, look, the Jetsons had some pretty big problems. I mean, Rose and the Maid, problematic problematic African-American stereotype. But I'm not here for that. I'm here because pop culture in general taught a lot of Americans, many of whom are in positions of power and influence for some reason, that we could pretty much ignore any problem because science and technology would find a way to fix that shit long before it became a serious issue. Once upon a time, people thought that atomic weapons could do anything, from like drilling giant tunnels to keeping the Soviet Union in check, or say, I don't know, break up hurricanes before they hit land and did any damage. That sounds like a great idea. It's not. Nowadays, you would of course need to be an absolute duller dipshit to believe something like that. I mean, you would need a chunky nugget of moldy Velveeta in place of a brain to even imagine the possibility of something so blindingly moronic as dropping a nuclear weapon in a hurricane is a remotely plausible idea. As summer turns to fall and the East Coast prepares for the heart of hurricane season, it's nice to know that President Donald Trump has a plan for how to combat these terrifying natural disasters with the use of lethal force. In the latest, wait, is this an Onion headline or is this reality moment of a presidency chock full of them? Axios reported in late August that Donald Trump has repeatedly raised the possibility of dropping nuclear weapons into hurricanes to dissolve them before they ever endanger land. Of course he did. Because again, why wouldn't he? Now, as much as I hate to be fair to a chunk of moldy Belbita, around the time that Trump was a kid, this kind of crazy shit was, wasn't even deemed all that crazy. Real scientists discussed the possibilities of using real nuclear weapons for all kinds of things. One of those things they actually discussed was dropping them into hurricanes as they were forming to disperse them before they become along and wipe the shit out of a beach community of retirees in Boca Raton. From an article on ScienceAlert.com, quote, so in 1959, Jack Reed, a meteorologist at Sandia National Laboratories, raised the possibilities of disrupting hurricane-forming weather conditions using nuclear weapons. Reed theorized that nuclear explosives could stop hurricanes by pushing warm air up and out of the storm's eye, which would enable colder air to take its place. That, he thought, would lead to a low-pressure air fueling the storm to dissipate and ultimately weaken the hurricane. Reed suggested two means of delivering the nuke into the hurricane's eye. The first delivery method, he said, would be an airdrop Though, a more suitable delivery would be from a submarine which would penetrate the storm's eye underwater and launch the missile-borne device, therefore delivering it and then diving to safety, unquote. Now, you or I, the kind of people who spent the intervening 60 years since this was thought of in a, an environment where nuclear war and nuclear fallout is generally considered to be unthinkable, probably think this is a bad idea. But this is versus folks, 50 in the f versus folks in the 50s who generally consider the whole nuclear idea. Sounds kind of lame. But actually borders on fun. You could see multiple downsides to the idea, the fallout, the nuke fish, that sort of thing. The reason the scientists of the time decided the idea probably wouldn't work was, quote, hurricanes are extremely powerful. A fully developed hurricane releases the same amount of energy as an explosion of a 10 megaton nuke every 20 minutes, the NOAA, a NOAA article says. 
That's more than 666 times, nice, bigger than the little boy bomb that the U.S. dropped on Hiroshima, Japan in 1945. So in order to match the energetic power of a hurricane, there would need to be almost 2,000 little boys dropped per hour as long as the hurricane remained a hurricane. What's more, the NOAA article says, once an explosive's initial high-pressure shock moves outward, the surrounding air pressure in the hurricane would return to the same low-pressure state as it was before. So unless we were able to detonate nuclear explosives in the eye of a hurricane on a continuous basis, we wouldn't be able to dissipate the low-pressure air that keeps the storm going, unquote. So the idea was abandoned for more practical considerations like, I don't know, say, setting up several hundred billion rotary fans on the beach all blowing back out to sea or hiring a bunch of really talented opera singers to hit an extremely piercing soprano note in unison in order to vibrate the storm apart. But, you know, that was how people thought at the time. Some people haven't had an original thought not involve barebacking a porn star since 1959, so the idea persists in a few insignificant brains hither and yon where they can't really do any harm, unless, of course, they have unrestricted access to, access to their own nuclear arsenal. But and then if they, that should happen, things would be very bad indeed. But you see, we've built an entire system where nothing like that could ever happen. <laughs> Clearly, I'm jostling the processed cheese food and chief a little. The kind of gentle ribbon you would give to someone you loathe and despise and fervently wish every single goddamn second of every single goddamn day would stroke out while trying to push a McDonald's shit out on the toilet and save the fucking country the embarrassment of his existence. Okay, all right, Dave, you know what you need? I need a strong drink in a peer group, but that isn't important right now. What I want to talk about is how Americans are always taught to believe that science and technology always has a miracle fix up its collective sleeve, so we really don't need to worry about all the things that clearly we really need to be worried about. Which is why right now, we're failing to do much of anything towards the planet being inside a slow cooker towards a human extinction. Because, believe, because we all think, we all believe... That science will save us. I talked at length about the problem of human extinction in the one, episode 180, The End of the World as We Know It. And in that show, I briefly discussed some of the wackier ideas people are tossing around for a scientific fix to our, to our slow rolling disaster. But here we are 66 episodes later, and my impassioned pleas for sanity apparently fell on deaf ears. You didn't actually think that was going to work, did you? I don't know. The show's pulling four-figure downloads a month now. I thought it was worth a try. Things are actually getting worse. And to be honest, so are the ideas for fixing the problem without actually, you know, doing anything about the problem. So in the spirit of flying cars and irradiated hurricanes, let's talk about the fixes science is working on to save our asses from ourselves. From coast to coast, in every state of the Union... The more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers of America present... It pays to be ignorant. What happens when a racetrack gets flooded? They pull the plugs out. Pay the man $8. It pays to be ignorant. How do you make a peach cordial? Buy her a meal. Pay the man $9 because... It pays to be ignorant. Oh, where to begin... I guess I'll begin with the thing that's causing the problem. Carbon dioxide, CO2, as it's fondly known to its millions of fans, primarily lovers of carbonated soda, 
is simply a single carbon atom bonded on to two oxygen atoms. Doesn't sound so bad. Indeed, it's not. It's a naturally occurring element all over the universe. On carbon, it comes from volcanoes, hot springs, geysers. Hell, even from rocks. Even plants need CO2 to survive. The problem is, CO2, it's, it's like a big, warm, fluffy blanket that traps all the heat and the planet underneath. And at the moment, it's about to Dutch oven the entire human race. It would have to be some kind of super Dutch oven. It is. Now, we could drastically reduce our consumption of fossil fuels in the next 30 years and keep the level of CO2 below the environmental destructive threshold we are rapidly skyrocketing toward, but clearly that would be inconvenient. So a lot of people are saying, you know, and we should capture it. Which is not a crazy idea. Indeed, carbon capture and storage at the source of emission has been around since the 90s. And had we pushed the technology since then, a significant reduction of emissions would have already had an impact on the planet. Wait a second, like we didn't do it. We did not. <laughs> because it is terribly expensive, and neither producers of the emissions or the consumers of the product that caused those emissions were at all interested in paying a penny more than they absolutely had to. Now... However, the problem is so big, we've moved into capturing carbon out of directly from the atmosphere, presumably with a large vacuum cleaner attached to an orbiting janitorial spaceship. Metamorphosis completed, sir. Spaceball One has now become... Mega Maid. Many people, many of the best people really, have pointed out that this is somewhat impractical. However, it's the exact sort of things that would please our president. There are more practical ways to do this, of course. I mean, we could just plant a whole shit ton of trees. Trees are terrific! The birches on the branches, lived among the leaves. Friendly Carly Cardinal, talking about trees. They are. Of course, to reach the potential, their full potential that they could actually be of help now in our moment of crisis, we would have needed to start planting those trees about 20 years ago, which means that we could also would need to invent a time machine concurrently uh, to go back and plant those trees. So it's probably simpler to invent the Mega Maid. A Google search, which is what passes for research on this show these days, reveals a lot of websites touting the latest in carbon-sucking technology, promising to deliver a million tons of carbon capture per year, which sounds like a lot. But considering we are releasing between 2 and 3 million tons of carbon per second, the technology seems a bit like pissing in the ocean, except we don't annoy the occasional fish. This isn't even factoring the cost of atmospheric carbon capture, which, to be affordable, quote-unquote affordable, needs to be around a hundo a ton that someone has to pay for. And I promise you, pod friends, it will end up being you and me. 
there are other technologies in the theoretical phase, including one that uses a household air conditioner to suck air, CO2 out of the air and turn it into an energy source, but that's just some shit on paper. There are any number of materials and machines existing in the minds of scientists and entrepreneurs and con artists to do the job, and uh, humanity has done some crazy shit before. I mean... No one thought we would go to that moon thing in a decade with slide rules and black ladies. The secret was the sisters, by the way. But we managed to do it. The people who come up with a workable way to suck CO2 out of the air and sock it away where it can't do any harm, let's just say they're going to, uh... And then I'm rich as fuck, and I got my house in Aspen. The problem is, as always, is that we should have been working on these things since at least the 1990s if we want to avert the crisis as it stands. And again, we haven't even really started working on it now. So since we didn't start either reducing or finding a way to capture all that carbon 20 or 30 years ago, it would take time to get any hypothetical tech up and running if it ever gets up and running. What do we do in the meantime? That pod, friends, is where shit starts to get weird because some of the ideas sound a little bit to me like they should be discredited for being batshit crazy. But I assure you, these are all being very much considered by reasonable, intelligent people with actual degrees, many of them not in physical education or anything like that. The reasons they are considering such outlandish-seeming ideas is our metaphorical balls are rapidly being pressed against the allegorical wall, and we are rapidly running out of time to pry them off the bricks before they are squished into blobby lobs of pink goo, metaphorically speaking. Ideas seem to all around revolve around solar radiation management, which is a fancy thing to describe what my pasty white ass does on a summer's day following the shade around a building. Back in 1974, yeah, we've been aware of this problem for a long time. A Soviet scientist posited that if things got too hot, we could just burn some sulfur in the upper atmosphere and block the sun from hitting the planet, thus keeping the planet cool and comfy like a fat white man in the shade of an awning with an ice-cold beer. This actually happens naturally from time to time after large volcanic eruptions like Mount Pinatubo blew in the Philippines blew up in 1991. The global temp was, went down by nearly a full degree Fahrenheit. Doing this on a global scale offers the benefits of proven science and a price tag you could find in the Pentagon couch cushion between two and eight billion dollars a year. That it? That's it. Sign me up, man. Sign me up. Well, hold on now, because sulfur dioxide is actually a pollutant. It could burn up the ozone layer and could have long-term health effects all over the planet. Not to mention we have no idea what happens to the environment when that sulfur starts coming back down. And most importantly, once we start doing it, we can never stop. Not until we've licked that CO2 problem, and maybe not even then. Once we start monkeying with the atmosphere on a global scale, we just can't simply undo it. Part of the sulfur idea is to increase what they call our albedo. It's because it's a boner pill. No, 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 no. Albedo, not libido. Albedo is how much light is reflected off the surface of the planet back into space. Seeding the atmosphere with particles that reduces the light that gets through is part of it, but we could achieve a similar impact by reflecting more light back. It's why it's cooler on a cloudy day. The white tops of those clouds are bouncing the light back before it hits you. So some folks suggest seeding clouds over the ocean to increase their reflectivity, sending more sunlight back into space. But did you know there is another way to change our albedo? It goes like this. I see a black roof 
and they're all painted white. That's right, pod friends. Scientists believe that if urban areas all painted their roofs white, we could have a significant impact on the climate. Actually, this is not a bad idea. I mean, compared to shooting sulfur into the atmosphere, this sounds doable. And it's like, maybe we should already be doing it. But again, the cost for all that roof painting, that's not like on the fossil fuel companies or all the people that are making the fucking bad things. Who's going to pay that? That would be you and me, pod friends. Now, of course, mucking up the atmosphere is cheap and dangerous and is almost certainly the craziest thing that we will do. But what? What? Just imagine that we thought bigger than that. I'm picturing giant space lasers, all right? No, that wouldn't work. But you know what could work? What is actually being considered a giant space umbrella. You've got to be joking. Look, if I were joking, I would have said... I would have said giant space parasol, which is objectively funnier word, but also closer to the actual concept since parasols literally mean blocking the sun, not the rain. From a 2016 BBC article, quote, astronomer Roger Angel believes he has the answer. 16 trillion flying space robots. Each would weigh about a gram, the same as a large butterfly, and deflect sunlight with a transparent film pierced with tiny holes. To keep the burden low, the lenses would be less than a hundredth of a thickness of a human hair. You can't stop sunlight with anything thinner than that, he says. Robots would be would steer themselves into orbit by solar-powered ion propulsion, a technology already used by the European Space Agency Smart One Moon Orbital to form a cylindrical cloud 60,000 miles wide. After that, they'd need regular nudges from a shepherd dog satellites to stop them crashing into each other or being blown off course by the sunlight they're deflecting. If you leave them alone, they'll drift off and eventually fall back to Earth, he says, unquote. According to the article, we could put those tiny satellites into orbit using a giant rail gun built into a mountain. Sounds plausible. The army of tiny robot parasites, of course, parasols, not parasites, is not the only way we could do it. It's just one way. How about a humongous Fresno lens to diffuse the light before it reaches the Earth? You need to stop this now. Just, 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 just hear me out. As recorded on the website Technovol- Technology, I can't pronounce that, see the show notes, quote, at a conference on global warning, Warming, distinguished astrophysicist and sci-fi author Gregory Benford pointed out that various measures proposed to stop global warming will not do the job soon enough. So he has a radical proposal. Build a concave Fresno lens, 1,000 kilometers across, but only a few millimeters thick, and place it at the L1 orbital point between ourselves and the sun. This would slightly reduce the total amount of sunlight to fall upon the Earth and cool us down enough to offset our greenhouse gas productions. Benford's credentials are impressive. He's a professor of plasma physics and astrophysics at the University of California and has been an advisor for NASA, the Department of Energy, and the White House Council on Space Policy. He believes that the project could be completed with current technology for a cost of about $10 billion up front and another $10 billion over its lifespan. The lens would be spun to help it maintain its shape. It would need thrusters around its rim to keep it from drifting away and spin it up to speed, unquote. This may sound crazy to you, but it didn't sound crazy to none other than Arthur C. Clarke when he used the idea in his novel Childhood's End when some alien overlords used the exact same thing to punish the Republic of South 
South Africa for, uh, let me just double check what my notes say here, uh, discriminating against white people. Whoops. Yeah. I just took a turn. Okay. All right. I see. I see your problem. Something with a less difficult origin story. How about a monstrous wire mesh or can I possibly interest you in some moon dust? Dave! Dave, no! Fine, let me move on to the last big plan my research revealed. One that I think is just the kind of thing that can save us all. Look, if we built this large wooden badger... It's kind of like that, but instead of a wooden badger, we build a mirror in space. We could build one big-ass mirror in space, like the kind your mom hung in the hall by the front door, although presumably without the little hooks that we hang our keys on, and we put it between the Earth and the sun, and bam... Problem solved. Or or we could possibly rig something up to shine that light on a space-born Pepsi ad or something and knock a few million off the price tag. Now, the one big-ass space beer plan is a more difficult option. A simpler plan is... A shit ton of little space mirrors, kind of like the butterfly diffuser things, all strung together with some very thin wire. Now, I don't know how this plan is simpler, since every goddamn one of us has pulled their earbuds from their pocket, only to find the Gordian fucking knot. So how are we going to get a bunch of tiny wires in space to keep from knotting up, and us having to like send up a scientist or an astronaut every couple of weeks to untangle them? But again, I'm not a scientist, but... Real scientists do have a plan for this. According to a 2005 article in Popular Science, quote, physicist Lovell Wood, a senior staff scientist at Lawrence Livermore, who has been researching the mirror idea for more than a decade, says it should be considered only as a safety net if all other means of reversing global warming fail or fall grossly short over the next few decades. Once in place, the mirror would cost almost nothing to operate. From Earth... It would look like a tiny black spot on the sun. I'm resisting playing the police song right here, mostly because we couldn't get the rights for it. People wouldn't even really see it, says Michael McCracken. God, seriously. All right. If his name was Phil. And plant photosynthesis isn't expected to be affected by the slight reduction in sunlight. Jack, I got to tell you, I really don't think this is your best idea. I mean, it's not a giant space laser or a Fresno lens, but we're running out of options here, people. I don't know if there's one thing we could take from all of my allegedly humorous observations. It's how for roughly 40 fucking years, scientists have been dreaming up crazy ways to save humanity from boiling in its own shit. Researching the show, I found references as far back as the 70s of scientists saying that we should be cloud seeding or sulfur bombing the atmosphere to prevent our inevitable crockpotting of the planet. You know what I didn't fucking find? A whole lot of people saying, hey, hey, maybe we shouldn't crockpot the planet in the first place and start doing some shit to slow down our carbon emissions. I mean, people were saying that to be sure. It's just that no one was listening to them then just like no one is listening to them now. If we had started doing the bare minimum back in the 90s when the first serious consideration of the problem began to filter into the political conscious from the egghead set, it's almost the, just the most elementary carbon reductions, basic capture and storage, implement cap and trade on carbon emissions, and invest in renewables back when Ross and Rachel were doing that will-they-won't-they they thing on fucking Thursday nights. We could have bought ourselves at least a century or more to come up with workable fixes and alternative energy sources. By the mid-2000s, when Al Gore was 
begging us, begging us to do something, anything. If again, we had just done the minimum, we could have mitigated the worst impacts and started a reduction strategy that could be paid for over the long term. We wouldn't be seriously, and trust me, people are seriously looking at some of these ideas I've talked about tonight, like giant space mirrors. Instead, we went with the Amity method of problem solving. We continued to ignore it until... Until it swims up and bites you on the ass! I mean, we could embark on a massive investment in renewable energy, impose massive taxes on fuel extraction and fossil fuel extraction and use, commit trillions of dollars to actually workable strategies to reduce our emissions and increase our use of solar, wind, geothermal, and yes, even nuclear power. We could focus on decreasing our reliance on private cars and improve public transit infrastructure. We could adopt... I don't know, say the Green New Deal, which isn't a fucking complete plan, but it's a roadmap to the future for getting us to the goal of zero emissions in the next 30 years. And if that sounds implausible, then so does a giant fucking space mirror. It would take a complete restructuring of our economy and our societal and you know and our society. And it isn't impossible. It's not even implausible compared to building a fucking umbrella in space. It would be easy. All it takes is an intelligent, informed populace willing to put off their short-term comfort for the long-term survival of the species. Well, that's not going to happen. So you should probably get used to the idea that sooner rather than later, the whole fucking planet is going to smell like a deviled egg fart from the sulfur in the atmosphere in the biggest Dutch oven in human history. Also, you know we're going to end up nuking a goddamn hurricane because, sure, why not? What's the worst that could possibly fucking happen? I mean, at least when that happens, we're another step on our way to the giant space parasol sponsored by Pepsi, the choice of a dying generation. Have you ever experienced turbulence on a flight and wondered why? And you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, you've got no issue with visibility or anything? No, everything's peachy. Maybe you've sat on the tarmac for hours wondering why your plane isn't moving. Well, we're outside here. They're saying the ramp is closed. They won't let us park because of the uh, Air Force One. Listen in on the conversations between pilots and air traffic controllers on the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast. Cybersecurity declaring an emergency. There's smoke in the cabin. I need to make a landing right now on 31 left. We have the most interesting, wild, and funny ATC recordings you will ever hear. Check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. That is it for our show this week. There are weeks when I struggle to come up with tangential topics to whatever crazy shit went down, but this week was ready to go by Monday. After all, when you wake up in the morning and read the president wanted to, tr to know why nuking hurricanes wouldn't work, you're halfway to a fucking show already. Toss in some outdated pop culture, the end of humanity, and some swear words, and you got yourself a podcast, my friends. After 226 of them, sometimes they just kind of write themselves. You can tell, can't you? Speaking of little effort for little reward, rate and review this show wherever you get your pods. Your little effort will result in little reward for anyone who discovers this low-rated show. All my tiny gifts of wisdom are on the Twitter at the hell underscore podcast, and my giant lumps of wisdom are on SoundCloud at the show name and maybe at the whatthehellpodcast.com if Fast Eddie has finally paid the bill. I don't know. Whatever. We You, you didn't lose much. So for me, Dave Rudolph Shanker Bledsoe, producer Matthias Jobs Gavin, and all the 
fictional Francis Buckholz and revolving cast of drummers on this show, we want to say, what is wrong with another sin? We'll see you all next week. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow.